Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Imas, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And when he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that had happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God in all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would one be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them saying, to gather together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. When they told what had happened on the road and how he had known to them in breaking of the bread, the word of the Lord. Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, is a brilliant writer who wrote a book in 2015 called Between the World and Me. In the first part of the book, he talks about his experience growing up in the city of Baltimore. He says, to be black in the Baltimore of my youth was to be naked before the elements of the world, all the guns, fists, knives, crack, rape, and disease. 
So he talks about a time when he was in sixth grade. He was standing out in front of a 7-Eleven with a bunch of other boys, and one of the boys flashed a gun at him, and he realized that his life could be taken at any moment. That was the world he lived in. But he also says that he was always aware of another world, a world that he saw on TV, a world that he described as suburban and endless, organized around pot roasts, blueberry pies, fireworks, ice cream sundaes, immaculate bathrooms, and small toy trucks in wooded backyards. He says, I knew that my portion of the American galaxy was black and that the other liberated portion was not. And I felt in this a cosmic injustice, a profound cruelty, which infused an abiding, irrepressible desire to unshackle my body and to achieve the velocity of escape. It's a pretty stunning statement. On the one hand, he sees all of the injustice and cruelty of this world, and he cries out against it. But on the other hand, he, he has this longing for another world, a better world, and he has this irrepressible desire to escape his world into that other better world. What happens when our desires for a better world are constantly frustrated by the injustices and the cruelties of this world. What happens? Discouragement, despair, hopelessness, futility. That is exactly where the two travelers we just read about are at the beginning of this story. They are bitterly dejected because as first century Jews living in Roman-occupied Israel, they had hoped that Jesus was going to rescue them from the cruel oppression of Roman injustice, but Jesus ended up dead. And yet, in this story, something happens to them. At the beginning, it, it says that their eyes were closed to the reality of Jesus and that their hearts were slow. But by the end of the story, it says that their eyes saw Jesus and that their hearts were burning. They went from closed eyes and slow hearts to open eyes and burning hearts. In other words, the resurrected Jesus leads them from darkness, defeat, and despair into an experience of light and truth and joy. How? And could he possibly do the same thing for us? He can if we see three things. We're going to look at each of them this morning. The roots of despair, the road to hope, and the hero at the heart of the story. We're going to see the roots of despair, the road to hope, and the hero at the heart of the story. First, the roots of despair. This story begins with two disciples of Jesus. One's named Cleopas, and the other is unnamed. Maybe it was his wife, maybe a friend, we don't know. But they knew Jesus personally. And yet, here comes the resurrected Jesus. And not only do they not recognize him, but they just stand there looking sad, mournful, lachrymose. They're in bitter despair. Why? Well, the simple answer is because they weren't looking for a resurrected Jesus. That didn't fit their story of the world. Friends, this is important for all of us because human beings can't escape thinking about our lives in this world as part of some story or narrative. So look at Cleopas. He had a story that gave meaning to his life. It was the story of the redemption of Israel, which really is the main storyline of the whole Bible, that one day God was going to send a king who would uh, be called the Messiah or the Christ, and that king would 
um, rescue Israel from her enemies and bring about a new creation, a world where there's no more sickness or disease, no more war or violence, no more poverty, famine, hunger, oppression, injustice, not, not even death. It's this amazing vision of a world made new. And by the way, it's completely unique in history. As far as I've ever been able to discover, every other religion says that the main goal of salvation, whether it's uh, salvation or nirvana or enlightenment or whatever it calls it, the main goal is to escape this material world into some kind of disembodied spiritual reality. Only the Bible says, no, one day God is going to renew this material world. And here's the thing. Um, the biblical vision is a universal vision for the whole world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. But by the time of Jesus, it had gotten shrunk down to a very narrow, political, nationalistic vision for Israel only. And they thought that the Messiah was going to be a military political king only. In other words, a God-shaped story had gotten shrunk down to a human-based story. So even though they still believed in God, it was really more about pursuing human goals in human power. You know what that is? That is an ancient version of a secular story. Secularism can be defined in many ways, but the most thoughtful scholars today all acknowledge that it doesn't mean that people don't believe in God. There's been a, a virtual explosion of all kinds of alternative religions and spiritualities. But we are still deeply secular because one of the reigning narratives in modern Western society is you may believe in God, but belief is optional. That means that when we come together as a society to work on our problems, that God is not a functional part of that. And yet, here's what's so ironic about that. Our modern Western story of progress is taking the biblical vision for the world a world without disease or suffering, without violence or war or poverty or famine, without oppression or injustice. It's taking that vision for the world, but pursuing that vision in human power. We don't need God for that. There's a brilliant Australian pastor and cultural critic named Mark Sayers. He describes this perfectly. He says, the modern Western secular story is all about seeking the kingdom, but without the king. We're seeking the kingdom, but without the king. So you may believe in God, but it's really more about pursuing human goals and human powers. And that will always result in despair because human-based stories can never get us where we really want to go. Flannery O'Connor was one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Her masterpiece is a book called Wise Blood. It's all about a guy named Hazel Motes. Hazel Motes has devoted himself to uh, creating a religion without Jesus without redemption, without God's intervention in this world. Human beings can make this world the place we long for it to be. We don't need God. In the book, Hazel buys a car, but it's a junker. He's always having to fix it up just to keep it going. One day, the car breaks down on the side of the road, and a one-armed man comes to fix the car. And while the one-armed man is working on the car, Hazel looks at him and says, it's a good car, ain't it? And the man doesn't say anything which really ticks Hazel off. So he says, listen here, this is a good car. It, you just give me a push, that's all. But this car will get me anywhere I want to go. Of course, the car is a metaphor. And that one-armed man says, some things will get some folks somewheres. What's Flannery O'Connor saying? She's saying human-based stories, 
pursuing human goals and human powers will get you somewhere, but they can never get us where we really want to go. For instance, we are deeply committed to this idea of human rights, but if there is no God, if this world is all there is, then human beings are just cosmic accidents. We're just a bag of chemicals. So where do we get this idea of human rights? Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man actor, but he's a British historian, uh, wrote a great book recently in which he points out that the Nazis justified um, the Holocaust by appealing to science. Human beings are just another species. Why should we privilege one species over another? They were just being consistent with their secular naturalistic worldview. And yet we're not okay with that, are we? Why? Tom Holland says this, that just as Nietzsche foretold free thinkers who mock the very idea of a god as a dead thing, a sky fairy, an imaginary friend, still piously hold to morals that derive from Christianity. He says the wellspring of humanist values lies not in reason, not in evidence-based thinking, but in history. He's saying human rights come from Christianity. Here's the point. Um, Our longings for a better world, the roots of our despair come when our longings for a better world are frustrated because human-based stories, stories without a resurrection, can never get us where we really want to go. What are we going to do about that? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the roots of despair, but next we see the road to hope. How does Jesus lead these disciples out of despair? Well, first, he just gets out on the road and starts walking with them. In the Bible, walking is a metaphor for relationship with God. So it's not just intellectual, it's personal. So notice that the the problem for these disciples was not just an intellectual problem. The real problem is in verse 21. It says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. The, The problem was not an intellectual problem. It was a heart problem. That their expectation was for a conquering king, not a crucified king. That reality did not fit their expectations, and as a result, their hearts were crushed. And we all know what that's like, don't we? We're always hoping for one thing, but what do you do when life hands you things that just don't fit? Where do you put things like abuse, oppression, or injustice? Where do you put heartbreak? Where do you put uh, the loss of your job or your savings or your health or a loved one? Where do you put a bad marriage or a failed marriage or no marriage at all? Where do you put things like mental illness, addiction, unfulfilled desires, unwanted desires? Some things just don't fit. The problem is not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem because some things just don't fit. So, so what do we do about that? Well, Look what happened to these disciples. You notice they actually had all the intellectual facts they needed to believe in the resurrection. By the way, they're the same facts you and I have too. For instance, they know that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Today, many highly regarded, highly respected mainstream historians will tell you that the historical evidence for the empty tomb of Jesus is as historically reliable as just about anything else in ancient history. In addition, uh, these disciples say that these women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Many of you probably know that in the ancient world, women's testimony was inadmissible in a court. There is no way that the very first Christians would have rested their entire case on the testimony of women unless it happened 
You know, in our culture today, we make a big deal, rightfully, out of the importance of believing women. Do we believe these women? Friends, there is all kinds of historical evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we're willing to check it out. And if you're exploring faith, I would encourage you to do that. But here's the point. The reason these disciples couldn't see the resurrected Jesus was not because the intellectual facts weren't real to their eyes. It's because their hearts couldn't accept it. It didn't make sense to their hearts. It wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a heart problem. So notice Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a heart problem. The reason their eyes couldn't see the resurrected Jesus was because their hearts couldn't accept a crucified Jesus. It didn't fit. And so the despair and the hopelessness prevented their hearts from embracing the reality that was standing right in front of their eyes. So how does that change? Well, notice Jesus enters into all the things that don't fit, and he shows them a new way of looking at it. He he doesn't change the facts. It does change them. So it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you know what scripture says, but you don't understand what it means. You've been so busy looking for the power of a conquering king that you missed the beauty of a crucified king, the beauty of a king who would give his life for you. It didn't change the facts, but it changed their hearts. So you notice at the end it says that they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What changed them? It was the personal presence of Jesus walking with them, working in their hearts, showing them that that all of the suffering, all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the things that don't fit, that none of that means that God is not at work, and even more, that God is able to use all of that stuff to do something even more beautiful and more glorious than they ever could have imagined. Our hearts get beat down by all the things that don't fit. We get hardened, we get bitter, we get cynical, we give up hope. We say, You're a fool to believe in things like love, justice, beauty, goodness, and truth. The world isn't like that. Don't get taken in. One of my favorite cultural representatives of that mindset is the fictional TV character April Ludgate from Parks and Rec. Skinny jeans, 20-something. The only time she takes her eyes off her smartphone is to roll them at all the naive people who are foolish enough to believe in things like goodness, beauty, and truth. For April Ledgate, it's not cool to care about anything. In fact, the word she uses most often to describe the people and things around her is lame. Everything's lame. You know what lame means? Lame means The world doesn't work like that. Only fools believe in goodness, beauty, and truth. Goodness, beauty, and truth is a lie that will break your heart if you believe in them, and I am not going to let myself be taken in by that. But then later on in the show, she goes with her husband, Andy, to the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been there, you know what happens the first time you walk out to the edge. You're just overwhelmed by the beauty. And as April and Andy walk out to the edge of the Grand Canyon, Andy says, wow, It's so much more beautiful than I ever could have imagined. But April, amazingly, April Ludgate says, yeah, I'm trying to find a way to be annoyed at it, but I'm coming up empty. 
What happened to her? Something overcame her cynicism and her apathy. It wasn't an intellectual fact. It was an experience of beauty and meaning. Listen, if coming into the presence of an earthly beauty like the Grand Canyon could do something like that for someone like April Ludgate, what could coming into the presence of the beauty of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ do for someone like you? The road out of despair and into hope begins with the personal presence of Jesus walking with you, working in your heart, helping you to see that Jesus is at work, especially in the things that don't fit. But there's one more thing we need in order for this to happen. We've seen the roots of despair. We've just seen the road to hope. But lastly, we need to see the hero at the heart of the story. If we go back to our friends, these disciples, remember, they had longings, longings for a world made new. And they also had a story that, um, that, that promised to be the fulfillment of all the longings that they had. But as we saw in the first point, their story didn't have the power to get them where they really wanted to go. So what does Jesus do? Well, notice Jesus does not deny their longings. He doesn't change their longings. He redirects their longings by showing them that the story they had really was pointing to him all along, only they didn't realize it. Again, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is a radical statement. It's that Jesus points to all the Scriptures. He says, all the Scriptures are about me. He's saying the whole Bible, everything in it, is all about me. You know, there are basically two ways of reading the Bible. One way is through a moralistic lens. You, you read a story, you extract the moral, kind of like Aesop's fables, and you say, aha, now this is the moral of the story. This is how I'm supposed to live. So, for instance, maybe you read the story of Abraham, that Abraham was faithful, and you say, aha, the moral of the story is that I must be faithful. Or you read about David, how he was courageous, and how he slew the giant Goliath, and you say, aha, the moral of the story is that I'm supposed to be courageous and slay the giants in my life. That can be kind of inspirational at the beginning, but that way of reading the Bible will ultimately only crush you. Because if you succeed and you obey, eventually it'll just make you proud and self-righteous and insufferable to the other people around you. And if you disobey and fail, it'll just make you despairing and bitter. That way of reading the Bible will always end up crushing you because at the end of the day, it's about you. You're the hero of the story. Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us that he's the true hero of every story, that the whole Bible is all about him. And when you learn to read the Bible like that, all of a sudden now you're reading about Abraham, but you say, oh, Jesus is the true Abraham who left his father's house but was rejected on the cross so we could find our true home in Jesus. Or you read about Moses and you say, oh, Jesus is the true Moses who leads his people out of slavery by being swallowed in the waters of judgment so he can make a way through the waters of judgment for us. Or you read about David and you say, oh, David is the, is the, Jesus is the true David who faced the ultimate giants of evil and death on the cross for us. Jesus is, is the whole point of the Bible. Every story points to him. He's the hero of every story in the Bible. And when you learn to read the Bible like that, not in a traditional religious way, but the way Jesus shows us, the way the gospel shows us, all of a sudden, instead of crushing you, that frees you. 
And understand, God does want to change the way we live. He does want to transform you. But the way he does it is by beginning with your heart, showing you how Jesus has already done everything for you that you could never do for yourself, that the whole story is about him. It all points to Jesus. And so uh, I would even go so far as to say that all of our longings and desires and our stories, if we follow them long and hard enough, ultimately they're pointing us to Jesus. You know, we live in a very pluralistic culture that says no one single narrative should ever be privileged over any other narrative. And if you want to follow Jesus, if that works for you, great. But we should never say that Jesus is the only way or the best way. We should just say, look, Jesus is just one story among many that may or may not be true, but, but its real value lies in its pointing us to a deeper reality. You notice that as neutral as that sounds, it's still a narrative that is exalting and, and, and privileging itself over all the other narratives. But even more, Jesus, the real Jesus, will never submit to that. Jesus is showing us here that he is not just one more story among many stories, and it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. The real point is that it points us to a deeper reality. No. Jesus is showing us that he is the deeper reality to which all the other stories point. If you're here this morning and you're spiritually curious, I want to invite you to consider the deepest longings of your heart. Your longings for a world made new, your longings for love, justice, beauty, goodness, and truth, your longings to be affirmed as a unique individual with dignity, to examine your longings and especially to examine what story do you have in your life. Examine that story. Are there holes? Are there inconsistencies? Can that story really get you where you want to go? I would invite you to consider that um, the possibility that the story of the crucified and risen Jesus is the one and only true story that can really get you where you want to go. Would you be willing to consider that possibility? What do you have to lose? Maybe you read one of the Gospels. Have you ever read one of the Gospels before? And if you have and you say, ah, it's just a bunch of hooey. You know, the disciples in this story, they knew their Bibles way better than anybody else in this room, and yet they had to take a second look. They knew the story, but they didn't understand what it means. Would you be willing to take a second look? But for all of us, um, will you look for the personal presence of Jesus in your life? Will you invite him in? Will you urge him to stay? Will you see that Jesus is right here with you right now? He's walking with you. He's working your life, helping you to see that he is at work in all of the things, especially in all of the things that don't fit. Even if you don't recognize him, even if you don't realize it, Jesus is there with you. When I was a musician, I moved from Los Angeles to New York City. And when I first got there, I didn't really know anybody. I didn't have any gigs. It was a huge risk. So every night, I would walk down to the West Village and hang out in jazz clubs and try to meet other musicians. One night after I'd been there for a few weeks, uh, I was feeling particularly discouraged. Uh, I still didn't have any gigs. I wasn't making any progress. So I walked down to a, a little park in the village called Father Demo Square. I used to love to go there, buy an ice cream cone, and just sit on the park bench. But that night, I sat on that bench, and I just felt so low. I was discouraged. I was afraid. I was running out of money. 
I, I was beginning to wonder if the whole thing was just a huge mistake. I didn't see a path forward. And especially, I felt so lonely. I was like, God, where are you? But as I sat on that bench, I remembered another time in my life when I had felt like that. I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I ended up in rehab. Talk about crashing and burning. That was a time in my life when nothing seemed to fit. It was the lowest time in my life, and yet I remembered that was the place when God first came alive to me. That was the place where God really started working in my heart. That was the place where God started transforming my life. God was present the whole time, only I didn't realize it. I wasn't aware of it. I missed the magic while I was in that time. And as I was sitting on that park bench in Father Demo Square, I felt like God was saying to me, Eric, I am with you. I am at work. Don't miss the magic. I am with you. Dear ones, in your lives and in this world, there are always going to be things that don't fit. Don't miss the magic. Don't miss the presence of Jesus walking with you, working in your hearts, showing you that He is at work in your life, even and even especially in the things that don't fit. Just as the disciples in this passage did, invite Him in, urge Him to stay with you. Let Him ignite your hearts and open your eyes and let Him lead you out of despair and into the renewal of the, of the world that you long for and make you a vessel of that renewal and that world to the world around you so that as you walk through life, the presence of Jesus would be with you, and that when other people encounter you, they may not even realize why, but their hearts would burn, and their eyes would become opened to the crucified and risen Jesus. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we praise you this morning, for you are the glorious creator of all things, Lord of the cosmos, and you sent Jesus to fulfill all of the stories, all of the longings of our hearts. Father, we pray this morning that whether we're um, just exploring faith or whether we've been following you for years, we pray that you would help us not to miss your presence in our lives. We pray that you would help us on the road, that we would see you, know you, and experience you walking with us, Lord Jesus, that you would make our hearts to burn with your presence and make our eyes more and more open to the reality of your glory and your resurrection. And Father, we pray especially that in this world of injustice and in cruelty, that you would make us vessels of your new creation to the world around us, that when other people encounter us, their hearts would burn with the presence of Jesus and that their eyes would be opened to his glory and his resurrection as well. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.